0: Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm with Born to be Breastfed. I'll be your host tonight. And with me is my special guest, Dr. Jennifer Thomas. Dr. Thomas, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Dr. Thomas is a pediatrician, and she has a lot of credentials, a lot of experience. She's very involved in breastfeeding, but she's also the author of... Dr. Jen's Guide to Breastfeeding. And I asked her if she would come on and talk about epigenetics and breast milk. And when I told my team that I wanted to have Dr. Thomas come on and talk about epigenetics and breast milk, they said, epige-what? What are you talking about, Marie? And I said, trust me, this is going to be fun. And fun, it is going to be I think that all of you will be very surprised to hear all that that, uh, Dr. Thomas has to say about the power that we have within ourselves just through breastfeeding. So I I guess I want to start by saying that this is the health and wellness channel, so I'm kind of betting that mothers who are listening are interested in health. But honestly, the opposite of health is disease. So we know that the word genetics comes from the root, the uh, the Greek root gen, which, by the way, that's G E N. It's not J E N like Dr. Thomas. Okay. <laughs> and so, tell us about the developmental origins of health and disease, so that we can better understand what you're going to say about epigenetics.
2: Yes, and thank you for being so brave and taking on a topic like this. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. When we talk about uh, the developmental origins of health and disease, that is a, a relatively new field of study, although it seems sort of intuitive that uh, there would be something to having a, an a event happen when you were younger that might affect your health when you were older. And really what it is is the study of exposures that happen to us in utero and during critical windows of development in infancy, and then what their effects are on our long-term health. So the developmental origins of health and disease have to do with things that happen to us in the womb and things that happen to us in infancy and what happens to our health later on
1: uh spoken like a true woman who is not only an MD she also has a degree in public health so she's really talking uh public health here so that's all well well and great but uh help us to understand it a little bit beyond just the how, what tell us about for instance maybe geographic correlations or something along those lines it uh- this field of
2: study has sort of been dancing around the idea of what we're going to talk about in terms of epigenetics. You know, how you see grains starting to think and, and put pieces together well before the, the discoveries are made. And really, this harkens back to a scientist whose name is Barker. And he did some amazing epidemiologic work, which basically means he found correlations – in populations, and then we're able to take those correlations and and come up with some really neat ideas about how we acquire disease. So he took, and this is this is mind boggling to me. He found a correlation um, between infant morbidity and mortality in 1921 to 1925 in England and Wales, and then so I said 1921. To 1925, and then he linked that eventually to ischemic heart disease in 1968. Holy. Oh, you've got to be kidding! Holy! Yeah, you know it's like <laughs> you sit back and go, nah, yeah, I could do that. I could yeah. do that. <laughs> I could, I could do that. Well, well, but even you, it was the fact that he
1: was thinking about it.
2: I don't don't. He noted that there was a lot of neonatal morbidity and mortality in 1920 due to people with low birth weight. And he found out that those low birth weights were uh, intrauterine factors rather than postnatal factors. And then he was able to hypothesize that whatever happened in utero was causing this disease, and specifically ischemic heart disease, when people got older. It's amazing. It's amazing that he could make that connection.
1: And so that was sort of the beginnings of looking at... uh how shall i say the impact of early childhood uh, nutrition and early childhood development would that be a fair statement
2: yeah it's it's the it's a good look at how not just our genes but the environment that our genes are in the wh- the whole nature versus nurture discussion oh, is it uh-huh. just your genes or is it your what other factors can influence the way that you are either healthy or have disease processes So nature versus nurture, and this was a pretty strong correlation, this was a pretty great hypothesis that he came up with, and it threw the whole discussion of nature versus nurture into a whole
1: new light. Wow. So that's good for the geography part, Uh, but tell us a little bit more about the nutrition and, uh, I don't know, starvation is probably too big of a word, but uh, uh, malnutrition, maybe that would be the right word.
2: So we talked about the differences in geography, and another uh, study, and everybody who talks about epigenetics talks about the Dutch hunger winter, and that was in 1944, and the Nazis still had control of parts of Western Holland. People were trying to survive on 1,100 calories a day. It was pretty awful. Um, Wow. Wow. What happened was that it became sort of a natural experiment. If a woman was experiencing that famine during the last two trimesters of her pregnancy, her baby was born small for gestational age, which makes sense. She wasn't getting calories. Yep, yep, okay. And the grandchildren, so the offspring of the small for gestational age age, Children were normal weight. So if you experienced it late in your pregnancy, then your babies were small and it made sense and your grandchildren not, were not affected. However, if you experienced the famine in the first trimester but not later on, the babies were normal size but the grandchildren were small for gestational age. So a nutritional impact in the first trimester, now we're seeing impact in uh, in children two generations onward.
1: Later. Wow. Oh, man. Uh, like, there's just a part of me that says I've always, well, maybe not always, but for a long time, I've really understood about how important it is for the early uh, childhood nutrition, obviously, you know, I'm in this business, but it really had never occurred to me that it was going to be not only the current generation, but the generation thereafter. So so talk to us a little bit more uh, uh, about the adulthood piece, not just the childhood piece and other generations. What can you tell us there? There's uh, several,
2: well, an- another study in Sweden. you got to love Scandinavia because you just... <laughs> Your your records, you just can, wow, they do a lot of good work there. They do. So they were they able do. to take populations that were born um, in 1880, 1905, and 1920, and they looked at each one of those groups to see who had access to food and who didn't during a period of time in adolescence that we call slow growth. You know, your kids mm-hmm. eat your Yep. Like They grow, 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 and then when they're about 8 to 10 years old, they sort of slow down. Level off, yep. Yeah. If there was increased food during this period of slow growth, increased food, though the grandchildren of those kids that had increased food lived 31 years less than those with decreased food. And they died typically from heart disease
1: and diabetes. ay aye, aye. I mean, 31 years. Oh, wow. All right. Well, you definitely have my attention, Dr. Jen. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I, I think that brings me to... And and on the other side of the break, we're going to talk a lot more about how this all relates to breastfeeding, but I sort of want to set the stage here. I I don't know about uh, anybody else, but I have trouble with some of these big words here. I'm a nurse. I, I, you know, I was the kind of kid who my biggest fear about going to nursing school was whether or not I could uh, pass the chemistry course, you know. so So tell us this. What is a genome? What
2: what is our genome? Or our genome, our, excuse our, me. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just the way I say it. Maybe it's different because I'm in Wisconsin. Who knows? Um, the genome is our DNA. It is our basic blueprint. That is our 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 DNA that that we were given that we inherited from our parents. That's what a that's what a genome is.
1: Are you telling me that that's just a fancy word for for DNA? Yeah, I'm sort of. Telling you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. It makes me feel right. good
2: that I'm so far in debt, you know, like from student loans. <laughs> I like using big fancy
1: words. So, uh, anything else that we need to know about genomes in order for us to better understand what we're going to talk about today, or 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 should we just move to talking about genes and disease? I am. I I'm just hoping that if we start off with uh
2: the idea that our nutrition and our geography and our environment are not isolated from our genome I think that's a really good place to start. So to start, we've we've right? sort of always seen our genome as something like our genes they're sort of inviolate and and then we've argued about nature versus nurture, and I'm trying to make an argument that it's sort of difficult to separate out the experience that the that somebody has um, from how their their genes are going to help them uh, stay healthy for the rest of their for the rest of their life.
1: As you're talking so, about this, I'm thinking about that word environment. And before I had a better understanding of biochemistry, I thought that the environment was like, you know, the trees and, and the foliage and stuff like that. And then I had to realize that really environment, it is the, the environment that we put the cells in, i.e. our bodies. And so when you say environment, that's a lot of what you mean, right?
2: Yeah. And I, I'm also talking about like socioeconomic situations. Um uh the adverse childhood events oh, can uh-huh. absolutely change the way that our genome expresses its proteins. There are a lot of things in the environment that can be both wonderful and nurturing um but also uh for other children be unpleasant and scarring and mm-hmm. all of those things have an impact on the way that uh we define health eventually for ourselves in the future.
1: Oh, we're going to talk more about that health thing when we come back. Uh, Before we go to break, I would just like to thank Mama Va, and that's M A M A V A, a modular suite offering nursing mothers a safe, clean, and beautifully designed space to pump or nurse when they're away from home or work. Visit M-A-M-A-V-A dot com today. I'm Marie Biancuto. We'll be right back on the other side of this break.
3: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: Call Marie today at 703-787-9894 to find an option that works for your staff.
3: We have a variety of packages to meet your needs without breaking your budget. Sign up for a live or online course or inquire about training today. Please visit BreastfeedingOutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Evidence for your practice starts here. Visit BreastfeedingOutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Your life, your health, your network.
0: You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Maria Cuto. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed. I'm here today with special guest, pediatrician Dr. Jennifer Thomas and author of Dr. Jen's Guide to Breastfeeding. So, Dr. Jen, before we went to break, you were talking about genes and the word genome, And I just wanted to say to our listeners, I I think a lot of people have really heard about the Human Genome Project, which I know started in 1975, and I'm quite sure ended in 2016. Uh, One of the things that I sort of heard along with that was the term junk DNA. Uh, Tell us about junk DNA, and does that have anything to do with breastfeeding? (laughs)
2: Yes, we're going to bring it around to breastfeeding eventually. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) When when the Human Genome Project launched, people said things like, we now have the possibility of achieving all we ever hoped for from medicine. So it, it really opened with this incredible enthusiasm. And we were going to look for the DNA answers to all sorts of Origins of disease, like the one, uh, the one mutation that causes cystic fibrosis, and the one mutation that causes uh, sickle cell disease. And when we did that, when we finally got the human genome sort of all mapped out, what the investigators found was what they called the the junk DNA. And I, you know, I'm a firm believer that everything has its purpose, and so I don't think the body created junk DNA. And <laughs> The, the junk DNA turns out to be the way that the genome is controlled. And the way that the genome can, is controlled is, is epigenetics. That's how we, we control what proteins are made. You, you talk about uh, chemistry. I have a degree in English literature, so it was also terrifying oh, for me as well.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah,
2: but it was DNA makes RNA. And right. the RNA helps make protein, and that's what I learned. DNA makes RNA, makes protein, and it turns out that the process isn't that simple because of the junk DNA, which of course we know is not junk not DNA. Junk, it is right. the way that we control how we how we make protein.
1: All right, so that brings apart. You know, I get this like all the time. I I teach a comprehensive lactation course to people who are trying to become a lactation consultant and then I teach a review course and I'm always astonished at how I have to explain the thing about protein because you know a lot of people when they hear protein they think like a hunk of chicken sitting on your plate and I am like you know and I I do agree that the the hunk of chicken sitting on your plate absolutely is protein I get that but proteins are also related to these protective mechanisms am I right and can you explain that yeah,
2: proteins have very specific
1: jobs. They have they have
2: uh the the DNA is the blueprint, the RNA is the way that the that the cell knows how to make the protein. And the protein has a very specific job within the body. And each protein has a different, very specific job within the body. And some of them are not very good jobs. They can cause disease. And some of them are very helpful in that they protect us from disease. And what our goal is, through epigenetics, is to make sure that the right genes are on and can make the protein that we want them to make and that the genes that are making the bad stuff are off right, and that right. they can't make that protein.
1: So. so, Dr. Jen, I want to make sure that our listeners really grasp this. You are saying that when genes, when the good genes are activated, that is good. But when the bad genes activated, are activated. That is not good. But you could deactivate those bad. Yes, it's possible
2: right? to deac- Yes, it's possible yes. to deactivate those genes. So one important part about the epigenome is that it's changeable. Once, once there is a, a a change in the way that our DNA is made into its protein is not the way that we're stuck. There are things that we can do to change it.
1: See, I love that idea. Because I'm sure I'm showing my age here, but I was always—I always grew up with the idea that you just have whatever genes you have, and and you're stuck with them. They're yours, and and that's it. And you're telling us no, not necessarily so. That those genes are changeable. I've used
2: it as an excuse, you know. Bad jokes. No, <laughs> yeah, I don't have yeah. that. It's not. It's not. It's not. It's a, not a valid argument anymore. Bad gene control. (laughs) It's gonna have to come up with some other excuse.
1: Okay, so I can't say that I'm overweight because my father's family was overweight and I got the fat gene.
2: Uh, sure you,
1: sure, sure you can. Now, I want you to know I was on the elliptical every single day last week trying to lose (laughs) some of that fat. (laughs) But anyway, uh, yeah, I think that's just really an empowering thought that we are not necessarily stuck. And now I know that somehow you're going to tell us that those proteins are in human milk, yes? Yes, I'm going to tell you that. Okay.
2: Some so, of them are in, pro, in in human milk, but you know, some of them still have to be made and how they're made can be regulated by components in human milk. So fascinating, fascinating things that human milk can change the way that we take our DNA and make protein. And not just it's human milk can change the way our babies Take DNA and make protein. We can change the way our children are expressing their proteins because of components in human milk.
1: Now, Dr. Jen, when you're talking, this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that I, I worked a lot of, of labor and delivery. So I was used to people really thinking about the baby in inside the body Kind of thing. All right. And you are now telling me that when the baby is outside the body and the baby is breastfeeding, that the mother still has influence over this is oversimplified. Of course, she has influence over the baby's development. But you're saying that she has more than just influence on the development. She has the ability to, through her milk, be able to turn on those good genes or turn off those bad genes. Yes,
2: and yeah. very much so, and and uh, significantly so in the form of the immune system. So oh. we have an, a baby who comes out into the world, and one of the ways that newborn baby is going to survive infancy is to not get sick. And we right. know many of the infection-fighting properties of human milk, and this is just one right now that we haven't really given voice to uh, because I think we're just learning about it, but it's fascinating yeah. to learn oh. about even more ways that human milk can help stop infection in that newborn.
1: All right. So help me with this because, you know, I I, I told you, I, literally, I'm not kidding you. I went to nursing school long enough ago that there were a few schools that did not require chemistry for the nurse. And so I knew that my, I was limited, you know, I could only go to a school that didn't require chemistry. Of course, that'll I had to take it later, but anyway, um, I I want to go back to the part about the molecules and the DNA and all that I'm hearing nowadays about methylation and histone. Uh, and, and this is not with kids. This is with adults and special diets and so forth. So can you talk to us a little bit about DNA, methylation, and histone modification?
2: I can. The DNA is made out of four base pairs. And do you remember that? Each base pair has to hang out with a complementary base pair. Okay. One of those base pairs. There's only four base pairs. They only hang out together. Adenine and th- um, thymine hang out together, and guanine and um, cysteine hang out together, and they don't switch up. So that's those. Those are four base pairs.
1: Okay, so help me with that. That was two amino acids, right?
2: Uh, they're nucleotides. There's oh, four sorry. nucleotides. <laughs> okay, and then the t- they hang out together. The important part is not that you remember this, is that there is cysteine in DNA. How about that? There's cysteine in DNA. And you can methylate, you can put a methyl group um, on that cysteine. And when you do that, whatever protein was going to get made uh, was stopped. So it, it didn't get made. So I have this... Uh, sort of imagination of my uh, my DNA, and there's a whole section that of my DNA that is going to become a Packer fan, and then there is <laughs> another section of my DNA that's going to become a Bear fan, and the whole Bear fan DNA is like methylated; it's all methylated, so that the protein couldn't be made, and I was not ever going to be a Bear
1: fan. Bear fans, <laughs> got it? That's a. <laughs> Yes, it, my love wonder- for the Packers is gene deep. So.
2: Yes, and inherited, by the way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask about that part. Mm-hmm. Okay, but you know, really, we hear about this nowadays with things like I'm thinking about like the adaptation diet, and they talk about the DNA methylation, and there's the everybody's eating kale, and you go into the grocery store, and they've got all these big things uh, about how you need to buy your kale, eat your kale, and so forth. So can can you like in any way relate this to the whole Dutch hunger winter thing? Well if you are
2: if you are able to methylate bad proteins, then you don't make them. And when we talked about the the Dutch hunger winter, one of the things that we said was that in the babies who were born after their mothers had uh, experienced the famine in the first uh, trimester. So early in pregnancy, but not later. The grandchildren were often small for gestational age. And what had happened was that much, much later, six decades Later, what they found was that there was less DNA methylation of a specific gene, insulin growth factor 2 gene, which, if it is expressed, is associated with the increased risk of heart disease. So, yeah. They never methylated that particular protein. Um, That methylation is easier to do when you are an infant Um, in a critical period of development. Right. Um, and what, what was overwhelmingly found was that that DNA, that that particular gene was not methylated. It was active, and its protein got made, and that protein was associated with adult heart disease.
1: Holy mackerel! I'm still reeling from the idea of the six decades thing. Hey, everybody, don't go away. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm your host, and I will be back with Dr. Jennifer Thomas right after this break.
3: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: The New Pocket is a newborn carrier specifically designed for skin-to-skin contact, affording mom full coverage and hands-free mobility while giving and receiving all the physiological benefits of Kangaroo Care. Our unique fabric is super soft, Breathable, moisture wicking, and it offers just the right amount of compression fit to ensure proper position and continued support. Hospitals and NICUs are implementing the New Roo Pocket for inpatient use to increase time spent skin to skin, as well as help improve breastfeeding scores and infant safety. Learn more at newroobaby.com. That's N-U-R-O-O Baby.com. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at
3: borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to
0: Born to Be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuzo or her guest on today's program, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuzo. I'm here today with author Dr. Jennifer Thomas. She has her book out, Dr. Jen's Guide to Breastfeeding. Uh, I want to mention, by the way, that on Amazon, that has a five-star review. Every single person who reviewed it gave it a five-star review. And, of course, for those of you who would like to pick up a copy of Dr. Thomas's book, which I think you should, uh, I will have it on the Born to Be Breastfed site. So here's what you do. You go to borntobebreastfed.com. And we will feature Dr. Thomas's book there. While you're on the board to be Breastfed site, would you please remember to read my blog? Because I wrote what I thought was a pretty interesting blog on epigenetics and empowerment. And I could not believe that I was putting those two words into the same sentence. But actually, I did. Hey, by the way, Jenny, I was able to do that without a degree in English literature, okay? <laughs> um, All right, so, uh, you know, we've talked about things that we've heard in the news. We've certainly talked about uh, heard about the Human Genome Project. We've heard about the methylation. We hear about stem cells all the time. So what the heck do stem cells have to do with breastfeeding?
2: We're going to talk about some components that happen naturally, occur naturally in human milk And get passed to the baby and have really important functions. One of the things that we have recently discovered that crosses into the baby from human milk are stem cells. Stem cells from mom. And they can get into the baby's body. And because the immune system of that infant is so immature, there really isn't much of an immune response to this sort of foreign stem cell and that allows that stem cell to be incorporated into what the baby needs in terms of uh, healing or uh, creation of uh, areas that need to be be fixed and the the fascinating thing about stem cells well there's about a million things that are fascinating right uh-huh. but that uh-huh. the, how do you know like how does that stem cell know when it crosses through breast milk, gets into the baby, whether or not it needs to be a liver or an ankle? Like, how does, it, how does that happen? I don't know. So there's got to be things that say, okay, you're going to be part of the liver. And, and then as that stem cell undergoes the changes that it needs to, to become part of the liver, there have to be a ton of proteins that are turned off and those are epigenetic uh-huh. modifications that happen right from the beginning so the epigenome is turning off everything that says you're going to be an ankle or a spleen or a you know part of the earlobe and it keeps producing protein that says you're going to be a liver cell so epi- the epigenome in this case allows a uh, a cell that has no no idea where it's going yet to be programmed into the right organ that it's it's supposed to be. The idea also that you can pass things like stem cells from mom to baby means that you can pass genetic material through a way other than sexual reproduction. So yep. we have always thought that, you know, you get your chromosomes from your dad, your chromosomes from your mom, and you create baby, and that's how you get your your genetic material. And now we're talking about genetic material coming through uh, breast milk in huge quantities to help that baby make the adaptations that that baby needs to to survive infancy.
1: Which is kind of mind-boggling when you think about how we have put so much confidence, if you will, confidence in stem cells to help us to help other people to live a better life. And it's like, hello, we've already got stem cells. They're in the mother's milk and we could be helping a lot of people to live a better life uh, because of these stem cells. Uh, all right, so so help me with this. We know that, uh, at least I know, I guess I know. I, I, I would admit a kind of questioning what I know here in the last few minutes. But we know that identical twins are called identical because they have the same DNA. But... If we've ever met identical twins, we know that they can have some very distinct differences. Uh, Seems to me like they have more differences as they get older. How does all that fit with this whole epigenetic discussion?
2: Well, if you have the exact same DNA as another person, let's take a disease like schizophrenia, where if one twin has schizophrenia, the rate of the other twin having schizophrenia is about 50%, 50%. So there's about a 50% risk for the other twin to develop schizophrenia. If their DNA was exactly the same, that risk should be 100%, right. Right. not 50%. So they should be experiencing these diseases at exactly the same time, at the same rate, so why is it that one twin could has a 50% chance of not getting schizophrenia? Uh, and it's really the environment and nutrition and and the environment, meaning all of the different things that we've talked about in terms of the environment and yeah. the components of it, and then nutrition and probably some things that we don't, Quite understand yet that are influencing uh, the proteins that our bodies make and the way that they are are used. So clearly, as time goes on, each twin has a different experience of the world, um, and they potentially have different proteins I- expressed. And it's sort of unusual to see identical twins looking identical as time goes on. Uh,
1: totally agreed. What can you tell us about uh, those mice with the funny name? I want to say like Agouti.
2: The Agouti mice. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh! When's she going to get to the Agouti mice? Thank yeah, God. Yeah. When she, she got it, to the Agouti. Yeah. M- yeah when's she going to get to the Agouti mice? <laughs> the, the Agouti mice—they're is It's easier to, to um, almost see pictures of this, but the Agouti mice—if uh, one of them has a uh, protein that's expressed that will turn um, their fur sort of a yellowish color, and the yellowish color is associated with um, not being very healthy, being overweight. So you can have Id- identical twins, identical twin agouti mice, and one is brown and thin and healthy, and the other one expressing a different protein from the agouti gene uh, is overweight and sort of yellowish in color. And what the experiment sort of very simply involved is this overweight mother has the her diet changed in, in each branch of the experiment. So one branch of the experiment, her diet was supplemented during pregnancy and nursing with additional methyl groups, which we now know is going to methylate the DNA and then change the proteins. So if she had additional methyl groups in her diet, despite the fact that she's yellow and obese, 75% of her pups are going to turn out to be brown and healthy, just with the addition of a, of a change in her nutrition. And if there is no change in her nutrition, then 75% of her pups turn out to be yellow and overweight. So changing the nutrition during pregnancy and breastfeeding was enough to change the expression of the agouti gene so that these mice were more healthy than their mother, essentially.
1: Now, if we could just have children more healthy than their mother, that would be terrific. Uh, Jenny, isn't there a study, too, about uh, there were several generations of it was an animal study where they rang a bell or they uh, did, did. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yes. I, feel, I feel sorry. Yeah, this is sort of the, the study is again about sort of the environment and what the idea was is that a mouse was exposed to a uh, very nice smell, like a, a great smell, and every time that mouse smelled that. Uh, Smell, they were shocked or experienced some kind of awful treatment. I believe it was like an electrical shock. Yeah, yeah. The next generation would respond with a fight or flight response and huddle and go away immediately upon smelling the smell without having to experience the shock. And they were able to get that same result generation after generation, five generations of mice responding to that smell. And it's the last four that didn't even experience the adverse event. And you can see how that would be beneficial to us. You know, we don't want our kids to have to go through something horrendous in order to avoid it again. So it's sort of a self-preservation mechanism. But you can also see how an adverse childhood event may have um, implications. And um, I'm being irresponsible here by taking a mouse study and extrapolating it to humans. But
1: right, right. so.
2: I'm I, Yes, it's, tem- it's tempting to make that jump, but you can see how, at least for the mouse, it makes sense that if there is something bad that's going to happen, that not every subsequent generation has to experience that badness.
1: Well, I would be the first one to say that it's not fair to extrapolate animal study results to human beings. But look at what we know about other mammals in general Look at what we know about skin-to-skin contact. Look at what we know about noxious stimuli, which, again, I'm probably showing my age, but I think it was like 1991 or 1993 that the uh, Academy of of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the AAP, came out and said, don't do noxious stimuli to babies when they're first born. And now you're kind of saying the same thing. You're saying that uh, they, they do react, these mice, and certainly, uh, we could really wonder then, is is that part of what kids are reacting to? And I guess I would also wonder, and and again, this is like so far fetched, but certainly, we know that there are whole families that have uh, aggressive traits or whole families that have generosity traits or whatever. So I, I guess I'm just kind of wondering out loud. If I keep wondering, uh, we can talk about it on the other side of the break. But, hey, listen, uh, we got to take a break. We will be right back after this short break.
3: Your life, your health, your network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening
0: to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuzo or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Arabian Russo. I'm here today with pediatrician and author of Dr. Jen's Guide to Breastfeeding. That would be Dr. Jen Thomas. So, Dr. Jen, you've talked today about DNA quite a lot but you know when I was in school and I could actually get those words out of my mouth DNA always kind of went with RNA and you have not mentioned RNA so where does RNA fit into this whole whole thing with components of human milk
2: There is a special type of RNA very small RNA that doesn't code for any protein so we said before DNA goes to RNA goes to protein but there's a very special one that doesn't code For any type of protein, it's called microRNA. And what it does is it goes and finds other RNA that's about to go code for a protein and it jams up the system. And it can prevent uh, abnormal proteins from being expressed, bad uh, proteins from being expressed. And it actually has a lot to do with control of the immune system. So if there is a problem with the way that microRNA works, then there's a problem oftentimes with the immune system. And the reason that I love talking about microRNA is that the human baby gets 1.3 times 10 to the 7th copies per liter per day from human milk for at least the first six months of life. I don't know, that's a big number, and it's an yes. awful lot, yes. it's an awful lot of copies, so it must play an enormously important role, plus we know it, it is present in human milk for at least six months, uh, making that six-month mark of exclusive breastfeeding even more important, more here's important. another piece of information for the exclusive feeding for the next six months, but it's... It's an amazing uh, protein that helps regulate the immune system.
1: And Jenny, I'm going to jump to the conclusion here that it might even be more than six months. It's just that six months is all the data we have. I I think that's right. Yeah, okay. I think that uh-huh. that's right. Boy, that. Uh, I guess I'm just sitting here wondering. So what? A, I, that's a boatload. I mean, that is a boatload of RNA. I guess I'm just wondering. So what happens to these poor kids? that don't have RNA, or these boatloads anyway, of this, as you say, micro RNA, I'm just kind of, I guess what I'm really thinking about, so often there's all of this, I mean, when I was a young nurse, I used to, you know, chant this whole litany of breastfed babies have fewer earaches and less diarrhea and blah, 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 but it wasn't until I read about the childhood lymphoma. And I believe that the AAP in their, uh, their recent, which was their 2012 statement, they actually cited two studies that showed a reduction of some 15 to 20 percent in the risk of leukemia in uh, babies who were breastfed for at least six months. Now, I'm going to ask you, Can this increased risk of disease for these really horrific things like lymphoma and probably for a lot of other things that we don't even understand, can this be explained by the epigenetics of human milk? Oh, it's so tempting.
2: Tempting. it's so
1: tempting
2: to say that. No, I can't say that and be responsible and look myself in the, in the, in in the, the mirror.
1: Tomorrow, um, yep. But
2: it, it's a, it's very, anyway. you know, the mechanism is there. The bio, biologic mechanism is there. We know that altered RNA, microRNA regulation leads to um, some uh, um, immune cell cancers I don't know that we can explain it yeah. all, but it's it's so fun for me to talk about epigenetics because it's these kinds of questions that always come out yes. when I'm talking to people. I love the expressions on their face. I love seeing the light bulbs go off over their heads and yeah. like all yeah. the great things that um, potentially are great research projects for people who want to undertake them.
1: And I'm just thinking, I want to connect those dots. I want to connect those dots, but I know that we it's, it's really too early. So for those who have joined us maybe in the last uh, several minutes, but maybe didn't come in to, at the beginning of the show, can you just sort of summarize for us what are the three take-home points that every mother needs to get from this show?
2: Well, epigenetics, it's complex but it is a fantastic new frontier for gene research and we should be checking out the news to see exciting new developments right now when I look at the research it's all about cancer treatment which I think is fantastic we're going to learn a whole lot more and there's more discoveries that are coming along the way um the human milk has an enormous um, impact on the epigenetics of an infant. We know that experiences in infancy can affect later on adult health, and it's it's clear that human milk has a role to play in preventing uh, diseases for that for that child and potentially subsequent generations.
1: Generations,
2: yes. Yeah. And if you start to think about, like, light bulbs going off and other things that we should be questioning, think about the implications for donor milk, inf- informal milk sharing or, or donations to milk banks. Um, there's DNA. Your DNA okay. is, uh, is in that milk. And I, it's, there's okay. fascinating questions to be answered okay.
1: about that as well. Uh, It's just uh, more than I can get my head around, to tell you the truth. All right, so tell us a little bit about what you have for us, uh, Dr. Jen. Tell us what your book is. Tell us about your website. Tell us about yourself.
2: I uh, live in uh, the wonderful state of Wisconsin with my three sons, and uh, they have all lived. um, uh, Despite their wonderful um, tomfoolery, I breastfed all of them (laughs) with... Different degrees of success. Um, the book came from a, a collaboration between uh, me, my best friend, um, and represents a lot of work that I've done on Facebook and um, my website uh, to help new moms. Um, get comfortable with the idea of of breastfeeding. I started that website in the year 2000, which was um, pretty brave at the time. Yes. (laughs) Um, And I have been building it up ever since then. And... Uh, there's a lot of people who go there for information, but we decided that having a book that was available, especially for people who are sort of on the fence about breastfeeding while they're pregnant, would be yes. just a, a, a wonderful gift to to uh, to come out of all the work from the website. My website leads to two Facebook pages, two Twitter handles. Like I, I you know, I. Yeah. Yeah. I, want people to, I want people to get good breastfeeding information, and sometimes the Internet isn't the perfect place to get good breastfeeding information. So.
1: Well, I'm sure that anyone who visits uh, Dr. Jen's site, and tell us, Dr. Jen, what's your site? It's
2: drjen4kids.com. It's the number four, drjen4kids.com. Four kids
1: Uh, I'm quite sure that I can reassure people that it will be good information on the website. I'm sure that I can tell you that Dr. Jen's book will be excellent. And by the way, I just want to point out this is where her degree in English literature would probably come in handy writing a book. And uh, also, I just want to say that a woman who starts a website in the year 2000 is the same woman who is talking about epigenetics to us tonight. And that's because clearly she is always looking looking for that that new frontier to be pushed back. It has been a real, real thriller tonight to be able to talk with Dr. Jennifer Thomas, pediatrician and author of Dr. Jen's Guide to Breastfeeding. Please check out borntobebreastfed.com. We will feature Dr. Jen's book there. And, of course, if you have questions for me or for Dr. Jen, Please send those questions to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. I will forward them to Dr. Jen, and I'm sure she will do her best to uh, answer those. But that's all the time that we have today. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Jennifer Thomas, for coming to uh, be with us for this short hour. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving me a chance to talk about my passion. Indeed, it is a passion. And I would like to invite, I'd like to thank all of you for coming and listening to what Dr. Jen had to share with us tonight. I'd like to invite all of you to come back next week. And if you're interested in Dr. Jen's book or other media that we've talked about, many, many uh, shows, check out borntobebreastfed.com. There are a number of things there. And also, uh, if you are a professional, Please come to my other website, and that would be breastfeedingoutlook.com. I'll repeat that. It's breastfeedingoutlook.com, parentsworntobebreastfed.com, and to visit Dr. Jen, that is drjenforkids.com. If you're a professional and you're looking for continuing education about breastfeeding and lactation, remember I'm your source for evidence-based practice and education on the web, and sometimes in your city. I will, by the way, be in San Diego next week and shortly thereafter I will be in Dallas. My courses and tons of resources and my blog are all on my professional site as well as there are some on uh, the uh, parent site as well. I'm Marie Biancuto and I promise I will help you to cut through the myths and to clarify the facts about breastfeeding next Monday, same time, same channel. and. In the meanwhile, remember, your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuzo next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby.